What have I said? Guns complicate everything. Let me give you an example. The Petito family withdraws their motion to breach the attorney-client privilege. This is one of the most heinous crimes that can ever be committed. And uh, this guy can't be a dumb criminal because he's just pathetic. The Colorado Supreme Court sends a message to the district attorney who prosecuted Barry Morphew. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment below. Hit that little bell for notifications. And remember, you can listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. Now, let's go ahead and get to the docket for December 13th, 2023. So let's go ahead and open the record first on the docket. Now, I've told you many times throughout the uh, podcast that guns complicate everything. Okay, and I am a gun advocate, a firm believer in the Second Amendment. But as I tell my clients all the time, they complicate everything. Let me give you an example. So a woman who chased down and killed a 62-year-old man who was accused of committing a minor traffic accident by running a red light claims that she never intended to shoot him, only to take down his license plate number for the 911 dispatch caller. Now, however, witnesses told a different story at a... Uh, the trial of Hannah Payne telling jurors that the woman cut off Kenneth Herring with her car, jumped out and punched him after the May 7th, 2019 collision. Then witnesses said she brandished her hip holstered firearm, threatened to shoot Herring twice and immediately did so. Well, Tuesday, Payne was convicted of felony murder, malice murder, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, and weapons possession charges in a Clayton County, Georgia courtroom. Now, the jury took about two hours to render its verdict, not a long time. The evidence was pretty overwhelming. Now, she obviously looked uh, sad and sobbed when the uh, verdict was read, but that's what happens when you do things that you shouldn't be doing. So both Payne and the witnesses agreed that she drew her gun uh, but during her testimony, she claimed that she never intended to fire. Instead, she claimed that Herring shot himself in the struggle for the firearm. Now, uh, Payne's car was not involved in the crash at this uh, deadly altercation, but she pulled over to dial 911 after witnessing Herring run a red light in his Dodge Dakota pickup that caused a minor uh, traffic accident with a semi-trailer. Now, uh, Herring waited at the scene of the crash for about 15 to 20 minutes before ultimately uh, driving away. She ultimately followed and pursued the victim in this particular case, who it was believed was having a uh, medical episode and ultimately passed away. The jury did not believe her testimony. But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, I get it. You want to have a firearm for safety, you can do that in most states. If you're not a prohibited person, you can do that. But you have to actually be in fear of death or serious bodily injury before you can use it and be justified under the law. The best advice is when the dispatcher tells you, don't do anything, just get the license plate number, don't approach anybody, that's what you do. Because these type of situations can escalate and the bottom line is, well, then it gets really complicated. Complicated like you could spend the rest of your life in prison. Next, the Gabby Petito. Remember, there's Gabby Petito's parents are suing Brian Laundrie's parents. The lawyer for the parents of Gabby Petito 
has withdrawn his request for the court to order the suspected killer's lawyer to break attorney-client privilege and testify about what his client told him after her death and before the public knew that she was missing. The motion would have um, completely violated the uh, privilege that exists between a, a client and the attorney, the one that continues even when the client is dead. The client never waived the privilege, but who confessed to the crime in a suicide note. Okay, so Pat Riley, the attorney for Petito's parents, argued in a, a court filing that the handwritten confession counted as a waiver of the attorney-client privilege. Now, Mr. Riley, I get it you're being an advocate for your client, but that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. I, I've said it and I'll say it again. This case against the Laundry's parents is frivolous, frivolous. And to sue the attorney trying to breach the attorney-client privilege? Are you kidding me? Can you imagine? Maybe there should be a countersuit by Laundry's parents claiming that the attorney is inflicting emotional distress, maybe on the attorney as well as the parents as well, through this action, knowing that it's flying, filing frivolous motions. Any attorney worth their salt knows the attorney-client privilege remains even after the client's death. And for the attorney to try and do that, well, I guess he realized that it was a frivolous motion, which is why he withdrew it. He was going to lose, and he was probably going to get smacked with sanctions, having to pay the other side's attorney's fees. It's a shakedown. It's fourth theater. I don't like this lawsuit. My heart goes out to the Petito family, but this is garbage. This is the problem with civil litigation. It's a war of attrition to see who can go the longest, and I don't like it. I don't like it. My heart goes out to the family, but this is not going to bring your daughter back. This is not going to do anything. And taking money from the laundries, saying that they must have known that uh, their son had killed Gabby beforehand, what, what is it going to change? The, the lawyer made the statement in general terms. That's it. There was no intentional infliction of emotional distress. So. Also part of the same lawsuit, Brian Laundrie's parents uh, against uh, Christopher and Roberta, they denied the allegation that they knew about Petito's death, but conceded that they uh, contacted uh, Bertolino regarding legal representation for their son on August 29th, which any parent worth their salt is going to do. Bertolino then worked to obtain a criminal defense lawyer in Wyoming, which apparently the public didn't know, but so what? It doesn't matter. You can contact an attorney for any reason, for general legal advice. Maybe you've committed a crime. Maybe you thought about committing a crime and they're gonna counsel you out of doing that. The attorney for Gabby Petito's parents, I, I just, I can't, I can't do it. I, it's frivolous. But let's give a quick recap. So the lawsuit's uh, 2020 timeline that's in question is on August 27th, Gabby Petito was last seen alive in Jackson, Wyoming. On August 29th, Brian Laundrie tells the uh, parents, Gabby is gone in a frantic phone call. On August 30th, Brian sends uh, phony text messages to Nicole Schmidt from Gabby's phone number. On September 1st, Brian arrives at his parents' uh, home in Florida, driving Gabby's van. On September 2nd, Christopher and Roberta Laundry retain Steve Bertolino. Also on September 2nd, Bertolino enters a fee agreement with a Wyoming law firm on behalf of Brian's behalf. It's done all the time, ladies and gentlemen. Then on September 6th or 7th, 
the Laundry family goes camping at Fort DeSoto Park. September 10th, Roberta blocks Nicole's phone and blocks her on Facebook. September 11th, Gabby reported missing. September 13th, Brian runs away, grieving and later kills himself, according to the FBI, leaving behind a notebook with a cryptic confession. September 14th, Bertolino releases a statement on behalf of the Laundries expressing hope that Gabby is found and reunited with her family. Now, Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt are suing the Laundries, alleging that Laundries had direct knowledge of Petito's death and likely knowledge of the whereabouts of her remains when they issued a statement through Bertolino expressing the hope that Gabby would be found and reunited with her family. Riley has argued that the statement is outrageous due to the Laundry's alleged knowledge of Petito's murder, and it inflicted emotional distress. In the latest filing from the Laundry side, they argue that they felt pressured to say something despite their right to remain silent because of widespread media coverage and protesters massed outside their home and receiving death threats. Brian Laundry's confession of killing Petito in a suicide note found near his remains in the swamp about 10 minutes from his parents' house. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, it, I think it's frivolous. The parents have denied any knowledge of it. How are they going to disprove that in any way? There's not even any indication that Brian directly told his parents anything directly uh, that she was dead and left his parents admit to that. There's no case here whatsoever. I feel bad for the um, parents of uh, Gabby Petito, but this is not the justice that you're going to uh, try to seek. It's, it's just not. Next, this is one of the worst crimes that can ever be committed. And I'm not joking with you, ladies and gentlemen. Take a listen to this. And if you have small children in the room, maybe you want to cover their ears. A Mississippi man has been arrested after he arranged a birthday trip to engage in relations with a 10-month-old baby. Yes, you heard that correctly, ladies and gentlemen. Now, oftentimes you hear of cases like this where they're like, oh, she was 14, she was 15. Yes, there are perverts out there that engage in this type of conduct with babies, okay? I actually had a case like this once, and it was the only time that I literally got nauseous to my stomach um, it was so disgusting, all right? And there's a special place for individuals like this. And um, prison, prison will not be a good place for this individual. He is in grave danger. So please meet Dennis Allen Gall, G-A-A-L. He was arrested on Tuesday in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And according to the affidavit for arrest, Gall set up a trip via Telegram, which is a, an app, on November 17th, but he didn't know that he was speaking to an undercover FBI agent. Mr. Gall told the agent that uh, he was a contract chef for an offshore hiring company and said his age attraction is 0 to 12, but his victims can be older if they look younger, according to the arrest affidavit. Now, the agents discussed the possibility of uh, some sort of uh, contact with a 10-month-old boy, to which Gall replied that he uh, wouldn't hurt the baby, but would love to play and said it would be a dream come true. Now, when the agent said that he was in Tennessee, Gall replied that it looks like I may have to take a trip to Tennessee sometime real soon. 
Guess what? The agent and Mr. Gall exchanged phone numbers, and Gall texted to set up the encounter. The agents used the phone number to learn Gall's identity and that he was on the sex offender registry for allegedly, or actually being convicted of, molesting a two-year-old boy that he babysat back in 2000. And according to the Mississippi Sex Offender Registry, that took place in Louisiana, where Gall was born. Now, Gall reportedly told the undercover agents about his conviction and said that he'd molested uh, three other boys between the ages of two and four. Now, Mr. Gall further went on and stated that uh, he molested the boys all while awake, most of the time, according to the arrest affidavit. And as the agent and uh, Gall worked to finalize the uh, date, Gall said, that sounds awesome. I can't wait. This is looking to be the best trip I've ever taken. Mr. Gall's words, not mine. Well, needless to say, Mr. Gall booked two rooms at the Hotel Chalet at the Choo Choo and arrived at the hotel on Monday, his birthday. Needless to say, he was promptly taken into custody and he was booked on attempted child rape and two counts of attempted solicitation of a minor. Ladies and gentlemen, I've told you evil exists out there. That is a classic example of one. If you ever thought you're going to bring somebody into your life and you haven't checked them out, well, that's why you need to go to crimetalksearch.com. Sign up for the subscription. You can cancel at any time. But remember, anyone coming new into your life, maybe your family's life, your kid's life, do a search. Find out if they just happen to be on a sex offender registry list. You know, have they been to prison? Do they have felony convictions? Do they have bankruptcies? What are they not telling you? Go and check them out. Next on the docket, this guy can't even be a dumb criminal because he's so pathetic. Now, let me say this, I'm not trying to minimize the death here in any way, but when you hear this story, you simply are going to shake your head and say, this man is pathetic. So a Pennsylvania man is behind bars after brutally killing his girlfriend and then trying and failing at an elaborate attempt to ultimately hurt himself while lying next to her dead corpse late last month. So meet Donnell Brunson. He is accused of one count of criminal homicide and risking a catastrophe over the gruesome turn of events, according to the district attorney's office. On the evening of November 29th, Danielle Barbuti was found deceased by her sister at an apartment um, in Scranton. The woman's face and head were severely injured and obviously that she had been beaten. Three days later, Brunson was charged with aggravated assault. The initial charge was upgraded to murder after a chilling admission in the interview uh, room with police just days later. Now, according to the arrest affidavit, Brunson and Barbuti went to sleep together the night before. He, however, had suspicion that uh, she was cheating on him, and that's what he told the detectives. When he woke up at about 7 a.m., he began to beat her first five or six punches to her head using his right fist, and then once or twice on his left fist. He admitted all this to the police. And after that, Brunson hit Barbuti with a ceramic ashtray, covering her face with his hands and finally switched to a pillow to silence her screams. That's when Brunson allegedly decided he wanted to die himself. So Brunson stated that he knew that he only had two choices at this point. He told the police, I can either leave and commit suicide or go to jail for the rest of my life. Well, he tried to kill himself. How did he do this? Well, let me tell you. He swallowed a large number of sleeping pills, 
slashed one of his wrists with an X-Acto knife, and then turned on the gas stove inside Barbuti's apartment. Well, the last action in order to cause an explosion, uh, according to the defendant, Mr. Brunson. Well, Mr. Brunson woke up around 4 p.m. to the sound of Barbuti's sister calling the dead woman's cell phone, and then the alleged killer told the police he was surprised he was still alive because his uh, dying that day was uh, how it was supposed to end. Well, it didn't quite turn out that way. So in an interview with law enforcement, he recounted that uh, her leg felt cold when he woke late that afternoon. And then Brunson knew he had to leave the scene as quickly as possible and uh, covered Barbuti's face with a blanket. After that, he washed away some of the blood on his body and left the scene. Barbuti's sister eventually stopped calling and went directly to the apartment. Needless to say, she was dead. She was supposed to be babysitting that day and never showed. She never canceled. Detectives wrote that the victim's sister found the door of the apartment open and went inside, making the worst discovery of her life before ultimately calling the police. Blood apparently was all over the apartment. When the police arrived, responding officers also found the bloody X-Acto knife, another knife, and an open pill bottle with Brunson's name on it, a bloody handprint on the wall near the bed, and a blood-covered bag and diluted blood in the sink. Coroner determined that the... Uh, death was uh, caused by asphyxia. Now Brunson's alleged desire for his own death didn't end when he left Barbuti's apartment. Police wrote in the uh, affidavit, he apparently uh, stopped at a store where he bought two bottles of sleeping pills, a bottle of ibuprofen, and a bottle of water. The alleged killer then continued to consume the pills as he drove, finally settling on the idea of breaking into a mobile home he had previously worked on and wait for the police and try again. Brunson stated that uh, if, it, if he were able to move, he would have jumped to initiate contact, resulting in the police shooting him, according to the affidavit. He was later traced to the mobile home using his cell phone records, according to the police statements, and law enforcement found him there under a blanket. Police described a, a bloody scene. His hands were red. The mobile home was covered in blood, and there was a crimson stain on his vehicle steering wheel. Suspected blood. Thank you for your trust, Brunson allegedly texted Barbuti the night before she died. It's nice to know that you see I'm in love with you so much that I would never do anything to hurt you. Needless to say, Mr. Brunson is detained without bail. His next court date is December 27th. Obviously, we'll give him the presumption of innocence. He killed his girlfriend, even though he professed his love to her uh, because he became jealous. But what a pathetic schlub. He can't even finish it off the way he wanted to correctly. That is just pathetic. Anyway, next. The Colorado Supreme Court sends a message to the district attorney who prosecuted Barry Morphew. So the Colorado Supreme Court decided on Monday by a 4-3 ruling, they agreed that a Fremont County judge was within her authority to reduce a first-degree murder charge against a criminal defendant because the district attorney's office was responsible for a pattern of withholding evidence across many cases in violation of the district attorney's professional obligation. Now, despite the plurality decision, uh, members of the Supreme Court seemingly acknowledged that the judge of the 11th Judicial District had grown fed up with the district attorney's office repeatedly failing to disclose evidence to defense attorneys. 
Now, the rules of criminal procedure require prosecutors to do so within 21 days of the defendant's first appearance. Specifically, the Supreme Court cited 20 recent cases in which various judges and magistrates in central Colorado jurisdiction called out misconduct. The 20 cases illustrate, among other things, multiple significant discovery violations by the district attorney's office, explicit warnings from various judges that a pattern of neglect was emerging or had in fact emerged, and there's an apparent lack of oversight by the district attorney in the face of significant continuing discovery problems and the pattern by the district attorney's office of dismissing cases when faced with discovery sanctions. Now, the elected district attorney, Linda Stanley, is herself under investigation for allegedly violating seven rules of professional misconduct. Those charges include uh, that Stanley's own failure to ensure the disclosure of evidence in criminal cases. Now, although trial judges are permitted to dismiss charges against defendants for discovery violations, the Supreme Court elected to hear the prosecution's appeal in the case of Joseph James Tippett because it had never previously decided whether a reduction in the severity of a charge was an appropriate deterrence to future misconduct. Well, Janine McCabe, she's the president of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar, put out a statement saying that um, more common sanctions against prosecutors would not be effective when a district attorney's office habitually drags its feet or disclose for disclosing evidence. I think primarily it is a message to Linda Stanley's office, but I think it's also a warning to other prosecutors' office to do a better job and be very clear when they have a pattern that it's the elected district attorney's responsibility to solve that pattern. McCabe went on and said, I have not seen a judge reduce a murder charge in the past, but I've also not seen an extreme pattern of this nature. Now, Tippett stands accused of first-degree murder for shooting his father in the head back on January 6th. He confessed to the crime while in custody and under the rules a procedure, the deadline for the prosecution to disclose evidence to the defense was on February 8th. Well, the district attorney's office produced multiple packets of discovery by February 8th, including close to some 200 files. However, in the ensuing weeks, after complaints by the defense attorney about evidence being withheld, the prosecution continued to hand over more files, most of which existed prior to February 8th. So by the end of March, the prosecutor's disclosure ballooned to more than 1,100 items, only a small portion of which fell within the deadline. Now, appearing in court to address the evidentiary issues, prosecutors showed up late and unprepared to discuss the case at all. On March 31st, District Court Judge Caitlin Turner held a hearing to address a possible penalty for the District Attorney's Office. Turner, who was Stanley's Democrat opponent in the 2020 District Attorney's election, responded icily to Little's claim that support staff in his office were to blame for the disclosure problems. The court said, you're admitting here today that there's some lack of training, at least, or understanding by your support staff. And what I was hoping to hear today is here's our plan, not just to how to avoid this in this case, but in all future cases, the judge noted, this makes me believe that these issues are not going to stop. Days later, she issued an order outlining 20 cases during Stanley's tenure that featured either dismissal of the charges or sanctions on the district attorney's office for discovery violations. In one instance, another judge had reduced a murder charge from first-degree murder to second-degree homicide. Now, the judge ordered the same thing happen in Mr. Tippett's case. Now, Stanley's office appealed directly to the Colorado Supreme Court, arguing it was unclear what 
a pattern of discovery violation looks like. The office argued a pattern must involve the same prosecutor with an official policy of withholding evidence and egregious and repeated sloppiness. And the Colorado District Attorney's Council, the lobbying group for DAs, and the Colorado Attorney General's office also wrote in support of Stanley's office, arguing a judge's order about which charge a prosecutor can file was an infringement on the separation of powers between the executive and judicial branches. Well, the Supreme Court's uh, decision uh, issued on December 11th noted that there was clearly a pattern of withholding evidence in the 11th Judicial District, and the narrow definition of pattern offered by Stanley's office would insulate prosecutors from consequences, even when it was apparent that there were systemic problems. The court added that even if Tippett confessed to the crime and the case was in its early stages, Turner had imposed a sanction to address a pattern of misconduct. Because judges have the power to dismiss charges, they also can order a reduction in charges. In Tippett's case, a second-degree murder charge would still result in a sentence he could serve until he was in his 80s because it carries 16 to 48 years. Uh, the prosecution is not entitled to disregard its discovery obligations because it believes it has a strong case, the Supreme Court noted. Now, Carlos Samore on the bench a former prosecutor writing to dissent claimed the majority was leaving out the rest of the story. Namely, he believed Stanley's office was not on notice that Turner would order a reduction in the murder charge after it handed over more than 1,100 pieces of evidence late. The sense I get from reviewing this record, especially the transcripts of the hearing, is that the judicial officers in question were at their wits end with the district attorney's office and wanted to send a message that would finally be effective. Judge Samore wrote, they were looking for an opportunity to impose a severe sanction. Having sat as a trial court for many years, I understand their frustration, he elaborated, but that doesn't justify the severe sanction handed out here, which seems capricious and forced. Justice Moore concluded that Tippett should not get a freebie, meaning face a lesser murder charge, just because the prosecution took weeks to fulfill its obligations. So this is Linda Stanley's jurisdiction. Obviously, there were issues in the Barry Morphew case, a pattern, clearly 20 times. I may be a high rep learner, ladies and gentlemen, but something occurs 20 times, I think it starts to look like a pattern, our dumb criminal of the day. A, a Florida woman who earned the uh, sympathies of her community after reporting that her kids' Christmas gifts were stolen out of her home has been arrested for, guess what? False reporting. Shayna Hudson, who according to the Lee County Sheriff's Office, had called in a supposed burglar uh, report at her home on November 19th. The detectives who were investigating the case felt especially sorry that in addition to other items, Hudson's gifts to her kids had apparently been taken as well. And so they took the time to reach out to the American Legion and the Sheriff's Office shop with a cop program and arrange for new gifts for Hudson's children. Well, an anonymous tip to the uh, local Crime Stoppers tipped them off to Hudson. And the information was that, that the call led that uncovered that she had lied about what had happened. And the stolen gifts were soon found stashed at a relative's home. Not good. Anyway, Ms. Hudson was charged with fraud in the form of a false report to law enforcement. And she'll have plenty of time to think about stealing Christmas from others. I just don't get it, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, uh, the sheriff noted this is pathetic behavior and it's unacceptable. 
This woman took advantage of the system and is now paying the price for her selfish choices. Just tell the truth, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's face it. We all didn't have wonderful childhoods. You didn't get lots of gifts, but if you got something that was good, but you hope your parents wouldn't lie to get you more stuff when you stashed them somewhere else. Just dumb. That's all we have for you today, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.